Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Owen here of the Failed Critics Film Podcast. This is a special edition episode of our show where I caught up with Callum Petch straight after this year's BFI London Film Festival. Our regular podcast will also be released this week, which features a triple bill of film franchises that should not have even reached a trilogy. I'm looking at you, Inferno. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this one-off extra podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Failed Critics podcast. I'm talking to Callum Petch. Hello, Callum. Hello. Hello. Uh, straight after London Film Festival's finished. I mean, literally straight after it, right? You've yes. just come back from your final film there. Yes. And I'm already getting you to tell me exactly what happened. As of this recording, we are doing it at about 10 to 11 on Sunday the 16th, which is straight, which is about an hour and 20 minutes after Free Fire just finished at the Embankment Cinema. Yes. Which I got back. Mm, ben Wheatley's film. And yeah. I've now seen twice as well. And I'm going to spend the next six months lording it over my Ben Wheatley obsessed friends as well. Yeah. Uh, because, because I am a dick in case any of you listening to this have not already figured out over the past several times I've been on this podcast. Well, I, I am a big Ben Wheatley fan. So, um, yes, I will consider you a dick for the duration of this podcast and the next six months, if that's OK with you. Don't worry, I, I'm, I'm burning longer friendships than this. Uh, over, <laughs> over, over, I mean, believe me, I'm crazy. I'm a man on the edge. Nothing left to lose. <laughs> Sure. So um, what I wanted to ask you really was, how did you get into uh, London Film Festival with press accreditation this year? Because you weren't there paying for your own tickets. You weren't like losing a fortune on this. This was was proper. Yeah, no, no. Plus the fact again that London is super expensive. Mm -hmm. Like chocolate bars are one pound a go at places. That is madness. It really is. I mean, the official answer Mm -hmm. is that I came down here via the whole fire my uh, former university student newspaper uh where i you know i'd seen i got yeah they put out the lineup of the london film festival i looked at it, it just went Gah! and was <laughs> and then a part of me just went and then like suddenly like a random light bulb to my head of doy i could have try applying for press tickets mm-hmm. for a press pass and then pitched it to the new editor of the whole fire who I knew from the year before. They're saying, if, if I could put all this together and fund the entire trip myself and all that nonsense about there, would the whole fire vouch for me and potentially be, and if I were accepted, be interested in taking articles? And he said, yes. And then, and then about two and a half weeks later, they accepted my credentials, took the uh, accreditation fee off of me. And now I have finished this. Nice. That's the official answer. The unofficial answer is I have no fucking idea how. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they, the BFI just wanted my money. But uh, I'm glad I'm glad that they let me in any in in any case. So there's that. Yeah, awesome. And I guess the uh, it's got the added bonus because it's got you writing again. 
like constantly writing again, whereas you went yeah. through a, a quiet patch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's been it's been difficult over the summer to get back into writing, given you know third year of university, mm-hmm. which um, some of us may know, and which Owen is going to find out in about <laughs> well very short months is a horrible t- period of time for trying to juggle stuff. Great, but like trying to get stuff done over the, the summer has been hard. For, for various means, mostly relating to my depression, that there as well, and that there as well. But uh, in, like in the weeks leading up to it, I've been getting better about that. And then coming here and essentially writing two and a half thousand to three thousand words a day um, mm-hmm. for about reviewing a whole load of films. And like it, it really has sort of like sparked me in, in a way, and that there, get, getting me back into it. Like it, it, it's almost like this is meant to be quote unquote journalism, but really. Um, like as utterly you know, like dickish and that there as it is to say and that there, um, like, it's felt more like a holiday to be honest <laughs> like, like 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 i know exactly how that's sat- like how self-involved and like our social sounds are like oh yeah it's not a film festival and that there you know think other people killed so could be too it's just a holiday but um like but genuinely like, it, it's gen- it's like it's rejuvenated me in the same way that most people seem to be rejuvenated by holidays and that's well like i've had a ton of fun and it's literally only just now as i've been riding the train back after day 12 of doing this that i've actually finally started to feel tired and you know like <laughs> worn out because again like but uh, that's way that's way later than i thought it would but like, i thought it would be to be honest out there i've just had i've had a load of fun it's been really helpful and i also think i've actually turned in a lot of pretty decent work as well which mm. is strange which is strange compared to usual where i turn in a piece of work and immediately go oh god it's awful it's awful it's awful and then six months later I look back and go that was actually okay so well, i mean we yeah we we've we frequently had yeah comments about your writing in the past and people really like you know your work so i wouldn't be too down on yourself about that but um the, the, uh, these uh, articles that we're publishing uh, i'm really proud to be putting them on fail critics i think they're absolutely quality so um without meaning to turn this into a mini circle jerk on the podcast and patting ourselves on the back i think you should yeah be very proud of those they're great uh, um but what have your days actually been like? Because it's you're saying this is day twelve and only now you're feeling tired. I mean, have you been like <laughs> what, just like up at seven in bed at like one in the morning after seeing three, actually, four, yes. or five films, and then yeah, exactly like that, or yeah, no, exactly, yeah, pretty much. Um, so for, I'm going to shatter the veneer of press film festivals for our listeners mm-hmm. here now. But for you, I'm going to shatter the mystique, the glamour, riddle. Um, how it works, at least how it's worked for me anyway, the first 10 days of this festival feature from morning to mid-afternoon, separate press screenings away from the festival, away from public, where we, press and industry uh, members with a pass, get to sit down at the Picture House Central, which is, a, for the most part, which is a lovely, lovely cinema door being mm-hmm. there, which is, which I mean, it better be a bloody good cinema, seeing as 80% of my screenings were there. But um, like we all sit down in various screens and watch the films in advance either a day or two in advance a bit more than that watch all those out there get you get through free every day you know in various blocks some of them clash mm-hmm. obviously because they're on different screens that's how it is uh and usually start from about 9 a.m in the morning and run to about 5 p.m in the afternoon then after that if you want to see more films you go to the public screenings the other ones that everybody else pays money for to get into and if you're able to blag a press ticket through one of two means, either applying two days in advance through the official systems for random balloting or through turning up at the cinema 15 minutes before the film starts. And if they've still got tickets available and it's not fully selling, you can get a free ticket to get in then. 
yeah, then you watch, yeah, then I've essentially watched um, another film, Ben, at least about four mm-hmm. films in a day, ride the tube all the way back to where I'm <laughs> staying, and then write for two and a half hours, send everything off of all the images and whatnot, collapse onto my bed, and then get up the following morning at about half seven, eight o'clock to do it all over again. And that's how it's been for 12 days now. Bloody hell. I, I will tell you this much, um, I won't miss less than six hours sleep schedules <laughs> but for yeah. the most part for the most part it's been like it's been fine about that especially when most of the films first, the first thing in the morning have actually been really good well that's good i mean if the if the if you're sitting through like three films in a day and they're all terrible and then you realize that you just got no energy left and you know it sapped the enthusiasm from you then that would be bad but it seems like it's it's done the opposite it seems like it's just been more invigorating and more and yeah. you know you've drawn more energy from it so that's quite good yeah yeah, yeah. especially since like every day we'll have at least you know one we'll you have one like all the films are interesting in some way as well and mm-hmm. it and like and i've also partially been able to be to run on the like like on that kind of like shock value of i'm really doing this i'm really doing this i'm acting like a real critic doing this kind of thing and that there and the ability to you know watch films that wouldn't normally yep. come up to cinemas up north so speaking mm-hmm. as well so that's mm-hmm. been like that's been really helpful as well again that sense of you know keeping the energy going so yeah that's great okay so the films that we um we've got coming up we've got quite a lot to to get through but we're going to do five of the best and a few of the rest so you've got your top five that you've seen we've got um loads of different directors big name directors people will probably be interested to hear your opinions of their latest you know Denis Villeneuve Paul Verhoeven Ben Wheatley, Park Chan Wook. There's there's quite a lot to to stick in there, as well as I'm sure there are some that um, might not have come across anybody's radar yeah. previous to this this festival. What we'll do then, we'll start with the five of the best. Do you want to run through your five in reverse order? What have you got in fifth place? In fifth place out of 40 films that I managed to see from the 200, <laughs> yep. number 245 playing, uh, number five is actually a tie, and that is Christine and Kate Plays Christine. Yes. Okay. Um, which are both two separate films doing two separate things about essentially the same event, but I, I, I actually cannot separate them, really. Like, they simultaneously justify and negate each other's existences. Like, like in a way that is entirely unintentional, but thanks to the timing of their release and that, and such, and that, just it, it feels like honestly like fate in a way. Matt, these two films are destined to live together and offer both sides of a contrasting coin. Mm-hmm. So, for those who don't know, both films are centered essentially around local news journalist Christine Chubbuck, who in uh, 1975, just shy of her 30th birthday, shot and killed herself live on air. Primarily as a result of her manic depression, of her undiagnosed manic depression. Both of these films look at it from different ways. Christine is the heavily fictionalised biopic of the event, with Rebecca Hall playing the um, title character directed by Antonio Campos. Kate Plays Christine is a documentary of sorts about a fictional biopic where... The um, character of Christine is played by Katie Lynn C- uh, Seagal, I believe. Some of you might recognise from You're Next. Okay, yep, yep. And the film essentially follows Kate trying to get into the mind of Christine to, you know, put in a good performance, but then through that looks at the nature of acting and, the, you know, the nature of acting, the method process, and then the further on it goes starts to become more about 
experiencing like figuring out why Christine did what she did trying to find meaning in her act in her act of suicide and where she did it I suppose you know because it was it's quite a public yeah 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 way of of doing it and then pivoting further from that as well why we're all interested in Christine Chubbuck because mm-hmm. both films make a point here but Christine really was not all that special like she was instead just a depressed middle-class you know 29 year old woman you know who had no boyfriend um, in this case was still a virgin had various other like you know incidental life problems potential ovarian cancer and all that stuff and just like many other women you know depressed women across the world hundreds thousands hundreds of thousands millions of similarly depressed women around the world we don't tell their stories though in movies we don't constantly bring them up as some kind of history in that here people care about christine chubbuck because of the suicide and kate plays christine asks isn't that kind of really messed up like it, it isn't that kind of like sadism that we're interested in that kind of way in like that we're only interested in her for that kind of way does that mean we can really only romanticize the suicide isn't that like you know, finding meaning in an act that kate plays christine can't find meaning in mm-hmm. i can't quite understand christine the film Instead of that, is, uh, even though it's heavily fictionalized, it's all about putting the, the person back into the story of Christine Chubbuck, a woman, again, who is primarily known for the suicide, but instead wants you to try and figure out and understand why Christine would decide to come to that conclusion, mm-hmm. why, why she decide to kill herself. And it, do, it does this primarily through mood and character and tone. It, it purposely creates this feeling this look, this this start of, of depression, that there, it, mm-hmm. like it, it's really honest and straightforward about depression in a way that genuinely feels that's, that's the kind of truthful that Kate and Kate plays Christine is constantly trying to find her character and never quite can. Like it's a sad film, don't get me wrong. Christine is a very sad film, of course it is. What the subject matter is, but it's not a miserable film, if you understand me. Like mm-hmm. like in, 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 the, in the way that a lot of people seem to believe depression is just yeah constant day of pure misery all the time staring down at your shoes going everything shit i want to kill myself christine understands that that's not the case and it's not just about good days and bad days and you know but it wildly oscillates up and down depending on feelings and all that kind of stuff it also recognizes this sense of uncomfortable melancholy that can often overcome you although at least overcomes me a lot from time to time that, that sense of when you sit down uh, uh, just like when you sit down and you feel like you should be happier than you are, but you don't know why. And you don't know why you're feeling that kind of way. And that's the kind of movie that Christine runs on throughout. And it's, for me, it's one of the best depictions of depression I have seen in any film. Or yeah, maybe well, on, online, you, you compared it to uh, BoJack Horseman, which yes. um, I th- I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to, to not suffer with depression in my life but you know i've known people who haven't i think that that bojack handles it very well i can't say realistically obviously because i can't talk from my own perspective but i i think it handles it very sensitively and it it depicts it in a very meaningful and what seems to be realistic way and i guess if you're comparing it to christine i think that's quite a high accolade to 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 give it yeah yeah it is especially as well since um like bojack was stuff a gold standard because of the way it shows different aspects of depression across mm. a very scale that there. And Christine, instead, is all about trying to get the viewer to understand. As a result, it does end up sort of romanticizing the suicide and the reason why we pay attention to Christine. But 
also as a consequence to that it ends up actually speaking a lot more to me um not for having suicidal thoughts or anything like that i'm quite lucky that i've never actually had a suicidal thought because i'm too terrified to pay attention to that but like in a way that it's it's willing to try and put in that kind of empathy to make people understand why it is what it is. And I feel like it could actually be a genuine force of help if other people ever see him a bit and be able to just gain a sort of understanding. Because that, again, Kay Plays Christine is about trying to understand and failing. Christine instead is about understanding. And both films kind of start putting up the question of, like, like is this inherently problematic Mm-hmm. issue that they depict on film and they both do it fantastically um kate plays christine is inarguably about a film christine has a more like it is why i like more though based on my current moment in time which way round did you see these two i mean do you think uh, whichever way round you saw them is the best way as well or would you do you think it doesn't really matter uh i saw christine first because kate plays christine wasn't even doing a press screening until several days after and i missed that and did a public screening so i saw christine first uh kate plays christine helped point out a lot of the various artifices and um you know fictionalized elements of christine itself um Mm -hmm. which again works in that set you know for the parts of documentary that of a film that are again about exposing the artifice of acting of of storytelling and all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure whether watching this on order makes one of the other better or worse, mainly because they're both, again, they're both doing different things and yet somehow still feel inextricably linked to each other. Also, Christine, for record, has a thunderous Rebecca Hall performance as well. Again, like she is the primate, like Christine as a film is fantastic as well, but Rebecca Hall is what makes it a phenomenal film. Yeah, really, really, really like both those films. Okay, so we've got a joint fifth place. That's quite a good way to start. <laughs> he Plays Christine, as well for record, is now out in cinemas in the UK uh, as well. It came out on Friday. So uh, if you've got a chance to go see it at a cinema, make sure you go take that as well. I'm not, I'm not sure when Christine is due out in the UK, but hopefully soon. Excellent. So we'll move into fourth place. What's fourth on your uh, five of the best? Fourth place and the first of three French films on my list here because French film absolutely killed it this festival, really did, uh, is um, My Life is a Courgette. Okay. Which is a French-Swiss stop-motion animation film, most known at the festival because it's co-scripted by Celine Sciamma of Go Hood from last year, if you're mm-hmm. aware of that. What is, is it uh, based on a, uh, like, based on a novel? Uh, the film it follows Courgette, uh, which is not his real name, but his name his mother gave him and he likes as a pet name, who accidentally murders his abusive alcoholic mother and is sent to live in um, a care home full of other troubled, quote-unquote, older kids who hope one day to be adopted by another family, but, you know, but thanks to their age and the situation that they're means they might not. Uh, and the film actually follows him acclimatizing to life there, making friends, and it's just... It, like it's just this really really genuinely sweet and heartwarming little movie like with really likable characters a very lovely animation style just a way of depicting like this kind of world and this kind of relatively dark subject matter specifically through the design choices to make it look like um a kid you know like a kid seeing the world sure um mm-hmm. it's like you've got big you know you've got big heads attached to little bodies that all have these you know, dark circles around their eyes to you know, like in a way that makes it really like they're, they're, they're actually tra- they've been traumatized in past life by that stuff. But then you also have environments and sets and all that. They're constructed sort of like a paper, like like a paper folding, paper mache kind of way. You know, like this mm-hmm. really simplistic uh, child's drawing kind of way. And it's 
with wide spectrum of colours, but all muted in some way as well. And it's a really gorgeous looking film. Like it's adorable. It's really entertaining. Very sweet. It's crowd pleasing, but in a good way. Like I realised as I've been writing these pieces, I've used crowd pleasing a lot as a pejorative. <laughs> I don't. I don't mean to. Like crowd pleasing. Mm-hmm. Like a crowd pleasing movie in and of itself is not an inherently bad thing, as long as the film is sincere about it and works towards like it, like that's not some kind of like cynical, blatant. Oscar Bay being aimed directly at crowds who could just watch it and go, yes, yes, that was a good film. Wasn't that about important stuff? And then, you know, gone their way is nothing happened. <clears throat> Lion. Uh, but <laughs> like, but um, like, no, like, Korsha actually does put the work in. in. In a way, it sands down a little bit of the elements of the work, like, yeah, of the worst world amount there, but doesn't shy away completely from the sadness and melancholia that's powering all the kids' lives as well. Mm-hmm. Could it stand to be longer than 66 minutes? Absolutely. But it's that tone, that mood that carries it through. The animation, the really, you know, the, the wonderful characters. And it's just, it's really, really sweet and a lovely example of what, you know, animation is capable of as well. I'm, re- I'm really hoping, ridiculous name aside, how it's, it's either been renamed um, My Life as a Zucchini in, in America. <laughs> I, I, I'm really hoping it's able to get a, a good audience, like, you know, a nice wide audience. Because it's a really, really sweet idiosyncratic film. I lo- and I really enjoyed it. Will it get an actual theatrical screening, though? Six, six to six minutes sounds like it's not probably going to make it to your local Odeon, for example. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I mean, it's probably unlikely to do so anyway, because it's an animation that's not, like, not for adults, but also not, you know, blatantly for kids. Uh, like, yeah. it looks in a kind of kid way. I guess, sort of like Tracy Beaker? Okay. You have a Tracy Beaker TV show. Well, I don't you know, remember like, it, but I, I know of it, yeah, sure. Well, like how it, well, like how it wasn't for like young kids and that there, but it also was, but it, was, you know, it kind of hit that nice sweet spot in a way. And as we all know, British cinemas, and especially you know, general public, really don't know what to do with animation that's not explicitly aimed at kids in some way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Especially as evidenced by the total failure of Kubo and the Two Strings, for example, sadly. Well, I, I mean, I talked to Elliot Beverly from Super Pixels Radio about this recently. He was on our podcast talking about Kubo, and we had this discussion about animation. And and to me, the I don't I, we had a, a discussion. I don't know what the actual answer was really, but you know, most animation when it when it gets this sort of mainstream theatrical run, particularly when it's something that's you know you've described as melancholic or a bit. Um, not really for adults, not really for kids. It's sort of a, a, a an in-between kind of thing. It, it automatically gets compared to Pixar because that's what yeah. Pixar have done for, well, two decades. And yeah. um, I don't know whether that's a hindrance or not, whether it means that some films get bracketed into that and it perhaps puts off a certain audience or whether it adds a weight of expectation. I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I just I'd, argue, I'd argue yes, actually. Uh, so, like, especially since um, I made this point in my DreamWorks retrospective, like, I think in Monsters vs. Aliens piece, like nearly two years back now. <laughs> for DreamWorks, for example, you know, um, if like if Pixar make a bad film, it's compared to prior Pixar films. If, say, DreamWorks make a bad film, it's compared to Pixar films, even though mm. they've got their own library and amount of great films now to pick from. And that's kind of what happens here. And also, again, I, I really don't think because I was even at the, like, at the festival as well um, in one of the very few times I was actually able to strike up a conversation with you know, other critics and other screenings. I was sat next to a lot of people who were of that kind of, oh, I'm not normally a fan of cartoons mm-hmm. kind of way, like like they're inherently sceptical of the animation medium as well. Sure. And probably writing it all off for kids. I mean, I'd love to see what kind of kids watch my life as a cause yet and then start asking parents about sex. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which are a couple of conversations that happen in my life as a cause yet and it's kind of sweet and adorable actually. But um 
like, like again, like that's what it is. So yeah, it's probably it probably won't get a wide release in that anyway. But um, as like it deserves to be seen. It's a really really sweet film, and I really enjoyed it. Okay, that's two down. We're into the top three now. So hit me with your number three on the list. My number three is the stopover. The stopover. Okay. Yeah, another French film. This one by the Calling Sisters, uh, Delphine and Muriel who handled um, 17 Girls a few years back, if anybody watched that, that happens. This one is essentially a drama about a French uh, French army regiment who are on the way back from Afghanistan. And before they head back to France, they are forced to take a three-day de-stressing session mm-hmm. at a five-star resort in Cyprus, where they will, you know, they are, they are meant to unwind, relax... And also have mandated group therapy sessions that are supposed to help them work through whatever potential PTSD they could exhibit. Particularly since they only had one flashpoint while they were there and it was a complete and utter shitstorm mm-hmm. that nobody's fully recovered from. And the film follows that eventual complete disillusion into like that hotbed pressure cooker of toxic masculinity, unchecked PTSD, and of general isolation and and resentment and hatred and disillusionment through the eyes of two of the three female soldiers as part of their regiment, Marine, played by Succo, and Aurora, played by Ariane Lebed, you know, as they work through their own issues and very, and very quickly start to become victims of the rampant, unchecked uh, misogyny running through the regiment. It's a very uncompromising film. Like surprisingly tense, examines a lot of very heavy subjects. But in addition to being a drama and mm-hmm. really like disturbing and emotional at many points, it also almost functions as a sort of incredibly dark comedy. Okay, like in, in that sense of the fact that that these people are having to work through their resentment, uh, well, not even really work through them out there, but are being forced to simmer in their resentment. Mm-hmm. and their anger and their misogyny and their barely restrained libido and this bitterness inside a five-star holiday resort whilst everybody else is busy off trying to, you know, enjoy their holiday. It almost sort of acts like a like like a real holiday <laughs> in a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. okay. Yeah, you know, no, you know like, like those kind of like worst holidays but of what, the ones where nobody wants to be there, everybody hates each other, things start spiraling out of control and everybody essentially just leaves with the silent with the silent acknowledgement to just not talk about mm-hmm. what happened there, no matter how bad it is. For example, there's a, one particularly stressful and violent group therapy session is then immediately followed by bundling everybody onto a boat to drive them out into the middle of the sea to go swimming. Like all these visibly miserable, horrible people being forced to take part in standard ho- you know, holiday activity in the vain hope that it will somehow bring them closer together as a unit instead of continuing to drive them apart. It's incredibly well performed, particularly by Socko and Ariane uh, and Labed as well, you know, as the two lead characters. Genuinely builds a, a surprising head of tension in that there in the final third when um, Marine and Aurora realise that they can't, that even if they get away from the resort, they still can't escape like that pressure cooker of misogyny and hatred and toxic masculinity particularly in the military that asks you constantly to have to live in a boys club and tamper down all of your emotions and potential feelings through like lest you become seen as weak and be you know pounced upon mocked mm-hmm. ostracized all that kind of stuff as well yeah so I realize that they can't escape that even if they do manage to escape the resort it's an interesting incredibly well acted very well assuredly directed film and a great calling card for the coolins as well it's nice it's nice to have gone to this to, to have come to the london film festival to have seen 
one genuinely great movie by a French family director duo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's, my way, that's my way of saying, unfortunately, the Dardenne's uh, movie is just not very good, unfortunately. Well, um, I, I will mention, uh, before we move on, though, it's not, like, bad. It's just that murder mystery procedural is not what the Dardenne's are best at. Like, like it, it doesn't fit their sensibilities. It doesn't fit their st- their small, intimate, slow-moving character dramas mm-hmm. that they get perfected with Two Days, One Night. And while I appreciate them trying to do better, you know, trying to branch out and do more stuff from that here, the unknown girl just doesn't really work because it never builds up ahead of steam. And so when it does end up having to actually, you know, do murder mystery tropes and all that stuff, it just comes off as kind of awkward as well, which is a shame. But Stopover is great. <laughs> Stopover is great. Well, that's good. Is this where I should probably say I was a, I didn't like two days, one night? And then we can move on swiftly. We can carry on. We, 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 can, we can move on swiftly, if Excellent. you would like. There we go. Great. So uh, well, I will just quickly ask, though, because you, you said, like, French films have nailed it. I mean, is Euro cinema doing really well at London at the minute, more so than American films by the scenes of it? Uh, I mean, I'm not really sure if I could say that for certain about that, because I'm not sure what films were just standardly being shown in London. But, like, at the festival, I will say that of the films I saw... The vast majority of the French films I saw scored B grades or higher. In fact, I think the only one that dropped lower was The Unknown Girl, actually, uh, which I gave a a C plus. You know, between Life as a Courgette, Stopover, our next film we're going to talk about, and Elle, Mm -hmm. um, like they've they've made up a vast majority of the genuinely great films I've seen. The ones that stuck with me, because again, you know, you you do see a lot of films while you're at a festival. Mm-hmm. And that can run the risk of you, you know, again, you know, uh, and for a lot of people that can run the risk of films bleeding into one another. That didn't really happen for me, but... Um, Just like, get a bit of it, fatigue, I guess. You... Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah, that didn't really happen for me. But um, like as I was watching, I did find myself drawn more and more and more, uh, like getting a lot more from the French films as well. I think, they ha- I think at least the ones that are being exported onto mm-hmm. a worldwide stage, I think I'm ha- having a really good time with it right now. Well, that's the that's the sign of someone who's really getting into a film festival, isn't it? Is the French film sort of takeover? That's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. As, as as mentioned in my first post here, I am every st- I am every single stereotype <laughs> you have a post film critic. Yeah. Um, okay, so in second place, uh, what what was that? What came second? Uh, second on my list here is Nocturama the uh, third and final French film on the list here, uh, <laughs> written directed by Bertrand Bonello. Which I have described in basically the most fitting terms possible as spring breakers, but for terrorism, <laughs> essentially. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, I suddenly remembered what you said about this word on the website. Carry on. Carry on. It's yeah. all coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Noctarama follows um, a group, I believe, between six and eight young French. Let's call them what they are: kids mm-hmm. who commit simultaneous terrorist attacks across the capital of Paris. And then, I mean, retreat and hole up in a uh, high-end shopping mall for the evening before trying to get away the following morning. The film doesn't bother to tell you why they are doing the attacks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have any character work to distinguish exactly who these people are, uh, and their downfall is entirely. For, and it's it's essentially uh, what Nocturama is is. Again, as I've described, Spring Breakers for terrorism, that bit. In the sense that, you, in the sense that Spring Breakers is very much like this vicious indictment of 
youthful arrogance, youthful egotism. But where Spring Breakers puts it through um, like an American lens, yeah, you know, through partying, through a desire to live America, to escape Spring Break forever, and all that stuff. Uh, Nocturama instead puts it through the idea of domestic terrorism and the sense that you can somehow, and this, the misguided belief that everybody has, that they can somehow change the world and start a war purely through their actions in an age where, I mean, we, we, we basically accept our daily, like, we basically accept as part of our daily existence in life now, but we may possibly just become a victim of a terror attack at some point. Like, that's the way our life is now if you live in a big city. That's... Yeah how it goes like the, the film doesn't give us a reason mainly because the characters don't even seem to have a reason as to why they did as to why they committed these attacks and just looks them about their food their arrogance their boredom and just like this general sense of entitlement like they like the most excuse you get from them as to why they've done what they've done is that they want to start a war but they never specify what the war is going to be against they never specify mm -hmm. what they're angry at they never specify what exactly it is they're trying to do so is that because the characters themselves don't really know and it's just uh, uh you know they're, they're just i don't know a bit anarchic maybe or is it just that it's not important to the plot and so they don't tell you that that's how i take it like i take it as the former um okay. like i take it as that primarily because once they get to the um like the mall uh, mm -hmm. in, in the second hour Essentially, it's watching them slowly seal their own doom as they alternately indulge themselves in high-end, you know, rampant uh, commercialism. You know, whether it's um, taking baths in displays, like in display bins, or riding go karts around, you know, around the place. You know, just like in soldiers, materialism. That's it. Um, in commercialism and materialism, uh, whether it be through sudden crises of conscience, um, self-destruction. Or just like plain boredom mm -hmm. as well. Like, because when they get there, they are given specific instructions as to what they need to do in order to ensure that they will get through the night and be able to go home tomorrow morning you know, without being found. And they proceed to break every last one of them within about five minutes. Because again, they're teenagers, they're bored. And many of them don't seem to have an understanding or concept as to what exactly they've even done. To, can I, because to me, this, before you, you move on to explain it all, to, at the minute, this film is sounding like a very heavy handed uh, satire of is of isis i mean uh, did that come across at all from the when you were watching it or in your sort of thoughts afterwards I, now that you mentioned isis i guess in a way but also i'd say it specifically kind of avoids um the test because i mean for one the film was actually made and finished before the paris attacks of last year Oh, right. OK. That's a um, coincidence. Yeah. So it kind of acts more as both terrorism in general, but also specifically, again, modern um, like, like youthhood, modern youth culture. Mm -hmm. And it, in, in, in that same way that Spring Break has acted and in, in, and in that exact same, like as, pre as pretentious and masculine like film critic as it is to say here, in that kind of fuck you punk cinema that really does not care what you want out of it. It does not care mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if you it does not care if you want full on explanations for your characters. It does not care if you want it, like if you want to get a finale that's you know done full of comeuppance and all that stuff and that there. It doesn't care whether you want it to pace it, you know, it doesn't care whether you want full on developed characters and all that stuff and that there. It's just here to get in your face and like and be intentionally as provocative and controversial as possible in order to get its point across in, in a way that is 
both heavy-handed and also so that is both heavy-handed and also so sort of like, that a lot of people can watch it and just go what the hell was that about because <laughs> sure. that because like, I, I got that like because again as i mentioned in my piece as i was leaving my screen i overheard thoughts from every like all from all over the spectrum from that's two hours of my life i'm never going to get back to i liked it up to the ending to um you know to that's brilliant to this to that and all that kind of stuff um and like and it's i i found it to be phenomenal especially since it differs again in one key way from spring breakers and whereas in spring breakers crying has a sort of understanding and sympathy for mm-hmm. at least some of his cast you know particularly how their fates turn out Benello in Nocturama has absolutely no such sympathy. His judgment is like his direction is detached and removed. His um, like any stylistic touches are not, you know, are not representative of him and his mood. And when judgment comes, it is swift. It is clinical and like it's it's precise and it is incredibly hard to watch. Again, Nocturama really will not be for everybody. I can guarantee you that right now. Um, but if it is for you, and I'm trying to stress away from the word, if you get it, <laughs> because yeah, yeah, you know how it sounds. Like, but, like, but if it is for you and there, then you're going to love it because I absolutely fucking adore it. I really do. It's fantastic. Awesome. Okay. So number one then, I'm guessing, was A United Kingdom. Uh, no. no. No? Wasn't no, it? it really? Wasn't. Oh, okay. No. So what, what did take top, top billing in your, uh, your list of five? Uh, my number one film of the London Film Festival was Arrival. Oh, hey. Did Evil and News Arrival. Um, I'm going to refrain from saying too much about it because it's due out in a month and you're going to all talk about it on the podcast then anyway. <laughs> so I'm not going okay. to essentially try and say things that you're going to end up repeating wordlessly. But uh, Arrival is, Denis, is the new film from Denis Villeneuve, um, adaptation of Ted Chiang's acclaimed short story, um, Story of Your Life, and about... A linguist, Dr. Louise Banks, played by Amy Adams, who is drafted by the U.S. military to try and help establish communication with an alien race that has shown up in 12 separate spaceships scattered across the Earth. And nobody seems to know what it is they're trying to do or why they're here. And that's making militaries antsy. It's making the public nervous. And so it's down to Banks, um, a mathematician, Ian Dolly, played by Jeremy Renner, and a U.S. military colonel, played by Forrest Whitaker, like to try and start that dialogue to break down that language barrier before everything goes to hell. And where that kind of premise sounds like a giant, you know, like a recipe for a big budget blockbuster, you know, full of minute blockbuster, or even a slow burning filler, you know, the kind of ones mm-hmm. that Villeneuve has made his English language name on, instead is used as a mediative piece of hard sci-fi that is ab- just absolutely beautiful to watch. It really is. It looks in, like it looks incredible. It sounds amazing, and Villeneuve uh, and uh, screenwriter um, Eric Heisera's, uh like script script and direction do an outstanding job at managing to balance the kind of cold, calculating, hard sci-fi. Um, you have a kind of film where you sit mm-hmm. there and you watch um, pe- really, really smart people being really good at their jobs with an em- with more emotional. Um, powerful, headier, grander concepts stuff um, in the way that by the time the film hits its end game, and I'm no, I'm not gonna, uh, and without wishing to spoil whether I'm without wishing to spoil where the film ends up, essentially the film that Nolan's Interstellar should have been. Okay. Um, yeah, but like, like, 
you know, okay, this is not a slight against Nolan. I really like Nolan about that, but he is not an emotional filmmaker. No, like, I think I think we can all agree on that. Well, it's one of the things people always um, complain about, isn't it? That he's too Kubrickian in that sort of yeah. detached, cold representation of people. Yeah, and that's not an inherently bad thing. No, correct as yeah. well. Yeah, again, but it just means that when he does swing, when he tried to swing the emotional fences in Interstellar, it didn't work. Villeneuve, however, and this is really amazing because, in fact, again, this is the guy who made Sicario and Prisoners turns out to be able to keep that balance in, you know, to keep that balance around. And not just when the film goes big and huge in its final part. It even happens in the first half of the movie. Um, first contact, like the first contact sequence, especially between Adams and Bennett, is the sequence of the movie. In that way that it's able to make first contact at both a, a, a huge, imposing event and this quietly beautiful moment of, like, like, you know, that balance between fear and adulation over what first contact would be like over a kind of, a, oh, God, aliens, and then, oh, my God, aliens <laughs> in, like, reductive ways and like that. Um, that. Like, every progress, every breakthrough feels like a genuine monumental moment. And so then when the film moves into its final third and starts hitting huge, heady concepts about fate and time and all that kind of stuff from that there it absolutely earns it and pulls it off of a plum like arrival for me it's not just the best film of the festival it's one of the best films of the year so far like full stop i adored it is that a high praise though because 2016 has not been i mean it might have been better for you having seen 40 films in less than two weeks (laughs) but i mean i've found 2016 to be pretty turgid overall i mean 90 percent of the films that i've seen this week won't qualify for my like won't qualify for any list anyway well, sure uh, mm. you know, but um or to put it like this way um my top five before seeing arrival seemed pretty much set in stone mm-hmm. and arrival now is pierced in there and has okay. changed everything up again it is phenomenal it continues denis villeneuve's streak of being the, one of the best directors working today um and the kind of film where like I watch it, I know this is going to be the moment that he breaks through. Like, he finally breaks through into mainstream, makes other people suffer, take notice. And, and but you know what? Maybe Blade Runner 2049 is a good one. <laughs> like, like, maybe he can do I mean, if he hadn't already been proven beforehand, now he's done hard sci-fi, and he is he's just outstanding at it. Arrival is a phenomenal movie. I loved every second of it. Have you ever seen Contact? film with Jodie Foster no okay because I'd be quite interested to just see how it compares because Robert Zemeckis went full on Zemeckis for that you know (laughs) and it it was a little bit too mushy and I'm hoping a rival because that's not what um films have been in the um past you know prisoners and Sicario they've not turned to that so I was just hoping that a rival yeah yeah, again, again, I will say for everybody else over it that like the final third where it shifts will make or break the movie for you, depending on whether you're able to take some sentimentality with your, um, you know, big, you know, with your big hard sci-fi. Sure. Mm-hmm. I could, I could, and particularly because the film actually lays a groundwork for it beforehand. Okay. Like, it doesn't just come out. It doesn't just come out of nowhere and become needlessly mushy in that. There, like it's mushiness that's earned essentially. Okay. And I, I adored every second of it. I really did. Excellent. So that's five of the best, I think we called it at the start. Five of the best, Darren. Uh, and a few of the rest. We've got time for a few more. So 
I noticed, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast some big names that were um, at the festival. Paul Verhoeven with L, Ben Wheatley with Free Fire, uh, Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden. None of those made it into the top five. Neither did Terence Davis' A Quiet Passion, which I know you, you actually yeah. surprisingly really enjoyed, according to your... Yeah, A Quiet Passion was absolutely near, like like it was here, like, you know, like in that top five, at number five. Um, but the, the two Christines have, again, just edged it out, <laughs> which should say a lot, actually, about the quality of the top five, but A Quiet Passion. Terence Davies biopic about Emily Dickinson, like, just missed out. Because A Quiet Passion is phenomenal. I mentioned the piece that I wrote, and also I mentioned around over the years, but I'm really not a fan of costume dramas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They just do absolutely nothing for me. Like, not intentionally, they don't do anything for me, but, but like, I just watch them and I just get bored to sleep. For whatever reason, like, yeah, they carry a bit too much of an air of self-importance about themselves. The conflict's a bit too bourgeois and, mm-hmm. you know, hoity-toity, frankly, shit. They're nowhere near as witty as they say, as they think they're being, and all that kind of stuff. And A Quiet Passion, I, I guess I just avoid most of it by, like, dressing up in costume drama duds, but not actually being much of a costume drama. Instead, being a quiet, personal examination of... Um, yeah, you know, a woman at centre, Emily Dickinson. Less concerned her poetry and more about her various fears, insecurities, anxieties, um, and the great tragedy of the fact that in life she ended up living exactly the life she didn't want, which is a quiet, miserable, lonely life where she turns bitter and jealous mm-hmm. and completely overlooked for her various talents due to various reasons. It sounds sad, but the thing that surprised me most about it is how actually quite funny the film is um, and being legitimately, genuinely witty for a lot of it as well. And it, in a quite quotable way, actually, that I would... Uh, I realise I'm undermining my own point by not quoting any lines <laughs> right now, because, but I've seen like 25 other films after, after that, so lay off. It's genuinely great to watch. And also Cynthia, and helped as well by Cynthia Nixon, just putting in an, a tour de force performance. Uh, as as well um, as Dickinson, uh, like it's funny, it's sad, it's incredibly well paced, barring a couple of like sequences and scenes about that. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed it. I'm surprised by how much I actually enjoyed it as well. And I'm looking forward to getting to watch it again at the end of next month. When okay. It comes out everywhere else. Yeah, I'm. Not, I've never. I'm. I'm torn over Terence Davies. I've only seen a, a small selection of his massive uh, body of work. You know, Distant Voices, Still Lives, of course. Um, Deep Blue Sea. I saw his documentary of Time in the City, which is you know just about Liverpool, and just uh, that irritated me, which I thought was surprising. But um, yeah, I don't know. I will. I am looking forward to it now because of your review. But I think I'm of the same boat, really. Of costume dramas, period dramas, can do without them. In all honesty, but we'll go from yeah. a costume jo- drama to a rape revenge story shall we with l <laughs> paul verhoeven yes quite the opposite sort yes. of movie <laughs> kind of it i mean they're both about you know older women by like primarily created Drawing by men, some but, links to them yeah okay yeah yeah you know like the professional podcasters we are uh, you know, <laughs> just point out. Uh, like, yeah l mm-hmm. which is like, like I went to L, having had it sold as a rape, as a Paul Verhoeven rape revenge movie, yeah. mm-hmm. and instead, it's what L actually is is more a drama about a middle aged woman who happened to be raped than anything right, else. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's why 
I've, I've been saying this all festival, um, but I, like, I need this film to come out so that um, like more people could see it, and specifically so a lot of women and my female friends and female film critics can see it, so that I can, you know, so that I can understand this well because I understand. So you can get just a different man perspective that, on it, yeah, sure. Yeah, because as I've watched it, I'd argue it's actually quite tasteful respectful okay um which does not sound which i recognize does not sound like the kind of film you'd expect the director of robocop starship troopers and showgirls to make out of C- premise certainly not of showgirls i mean i oh basic instinct or anything like that i think he yeah. can be it's a very strange director isn't it you'll see something like starship troopers which i think handles the whole relationship between men and women really um Sensitively is the wrong choice of word there, but in, in terms of, I mean, it, it it's a different way of viewing it to your average sci-fi story about a group of Marines, right? Yeah. I think he's got it in him to make a, a comment that on sort of gender relations that's so, somewhat poignant. So to say that he handles a, a rape revenge story tastefully. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that much, but then I think, oh yeah, but he did. He's also the guy who did basic instinct and Showgirl, So maybe it is quite a shock. Yeah. I don't know. It's simultaneously exactly the film you'd expect Paul Verhoeven to make this premise and yeah. absolutely nothing like the film you'd expect to make this <laughs> premise. Um, the reason why I actually think it's quite respectful now is because, um, you know, the usual rape, like the usual rape revenge movie, Mm-hmm. The rape is the defining. It's the defining moment. It's the mm-hmm. defining characteristic of everything. It's where, like, it, you know, it's the defining act of a woman. She doesn't really have a life beforehand, and when she does get raped, it becomes the only thing that her life evolves around in that kind of way. As does the film. L instead wants to actually look at the rape victim as a woman, as a very complicated, complex, multifaceted woman with many other things going on in her life beyond the one the one guy who raped her and is now stalking her um like it, it sets itself stole out basically immediately in that vein that the film begin opens as soon as the rape you know as the rape itself ends it flashes back it flashes back later to show it again but um uh, but then rather than call the police although she does have reasons for not calling the police which are both provide both character drama and also act as a quiet commentary on our on society's refusal to believe women you know, in these situations, you know, like out of hand and out there, mm-hmm. like, you know, always have to treat up women and rape um, reporters with scepticism. Um, but instead, what she does is picks herself up, tidies the kitchen, you know, from a mess, um, chastises a cat for having not, for having just watched, uh, uh, like, yeah, for having just watched it happen, but instead of even trying to scratch at the guy doing it, um, and then goes about just trying to get, and then just tries to get back on with her life. Mm. Like, like the, the film essentially, like the rape is still part of her life and a part of her, you know, mindset and that there, but it's not the sole factor of it. And for the most part, she's actually trying to just deal with her life without, like, moving on without him. That and the rape only really becomes a central aspect when it, when the person responsible for it, that refuses to go away. You know, mm-hmm. like when it becomes a full-on pressing issue, she has to deal with. And in a way, isn't that kind of quietly powerful? Like, she doesn't just watch a woman being able to do what she, you know, being able to do her normal life. And a middle-aged woman, no less, as well, which is very, like, which is rather rare to see in films and dramas nowadays as well. So that's good. Um, the film also, even with Verhoeven behind the camera, though, it would not work without Isabel Hubbard, Hubbard as, the, um, lead, as the lead character of Elle. Um, like selling the holy hell out of what she's yeah, out of what she's given, finding the common link between the various complexities of 
um, you know, of, of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, again, in the final third, when the identity of the rapist is revealed and the film shifts to being both a psychosexual thriller mm-hmm. and the blackest comedy it is possible to make, like the absolute blackest, darkest comedy it is right, possible okay. to make. Uh, for various reasons. Okay, like it's that final thought that kind of makes me iffy about whether or not I fully enjoyed it, but I will say this, it is never, ever, ever, ever boring. <laughs> like, I'll give it that. It's, I mean, it's too long, has a couple of too many subplots as well, but it is also never, ever boring. <laughs> right. Like, like again, I, again, I'm dying to hear for this to actually come out so that other people can see it and watch well, it and I can have conversations with them. Um, but again, for what it's worth, I think it might actually be quite tasteful and really well done, mm. all things considered. Well, Matt Lamborn, who'll be hosting this week's podcast, by the time people listen to this, it'll be the one we've recorded. I don't know whether it'll be published yet, but um, it, it's he's the biggest Paul Verhoeven fan that I know. So I will look forward to seeing what his take on it is as well, because it sounds like it. it's not... A, at least it sounds like it's not just your typical Verhoeven film. So I don't know how it's going to appeal to those fans, but um, we will see. We'll see, I'm sure. Um, but one that it reminded me of, actually, um, from your description of it, also from the website, and I, in fact, I believe you compared the two in a, in some sort of way, was the, uh, the film Una, which had um, Ben Mendelsohn in it, who I really like, and Rooney Mara. Uh, yeah. Why the comparison between the two, first of all? Uh, well, mainly because uh, it turns out there were three films at this festival that wanted to try and um, challenge our preconceptions of rape, mm-hmm. of, you know, of rape, of consent. All of them, even L to an extent, but it's but this is really reductive to how the film works uh, mm-hmm. for records. So, okay. uh, kind of boil down to... But what if a woman wanted to be raped? And that's right. ulti- like, and that's ultimately what Una comes across as is a movie of that, as- that answers the burning question. But what if a paedophile was actually a totally upstanding and honourable guy, aside from the whole grooming and molesting an underage girl part? Um, and that's ultimately what it is. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, like the film follows Rooney Mara as the title character Una who was groomed and molested by Ben Mendelsohn's character uh, 15 years ago. And, and she's tracked him down under his new name, new job, and new life to confront him about how he ruined hers. Mm-hmm. And for the first half of the movie, like it kind of seems like it's being able to pull off what it's trying to do okay, because it's you know a constant back and forth between them both, as uh, Mendelsohn gives, a whole, gives off a whole load of bullshit excuses and Marlon refutes them at every turn. Then starts to give way to them both. To them both coming to the realization there might actually have been something there when they were younger. But like, right. there might have been an actual spark of some kind. You've uh, you've watched Alexander Payne's election, right? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you remember that um, the part of it where uh, Reese with a spoon and the you know it's groomed by the older teacher and that there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, like like it's disturbing and weird, but also with a spoon's character seems to genuinely believe there's a kind of like love in there. Sure. But um, yeah. Like, that's, I think, what Una's going for. But the problem is it's written so horribly and so, like, tone-deaf that by the time the final third rolls around, it's, like, things have switched into Mendelssohn just being a nice guy and Mara being the crazy bitch who won't stop trying to ruin his life and can't <laughs> understand things that are over. Okay. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's how that's how it goes. It's really bad. It's really, really reprehensibly bad. Um, like Mendelssohn is putting in great work. As you'd expect, because it's just fantastic, surely. Yeah, the problem is it's in service of the character as written. Mm. So mm. um and also again and also it's like really stagey, like blatantly taken from a stage play, which is uh David Howard's Blackbird. He also wrote the script of a film. Like in this really obvious, irritating way, mm-hmm. and not helped by first-time feature director Benedict, and- Benedict Andrews' uh, various directorial choices as well, like shooting the various flashbacks, you know, to um, Mara Mendelssohn's relationship when they were younger. Like, with a lot of straightforwardly deployed romantic filmmaking um, choices, you know, like soft mm-hmm. focus and this kind of like quiet romantic longing in there. Again, an inundation of sub of random subplots that do nothing but take away from the main conflict and make Mendelssohn out to be just a nice old guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Really, really just repellent viewing and massively, like massively bongled. Um, again, I, I finished watching it and I hated the film I watched, but I also came out of actually more respect for L as well, which like I, like, I watched it, I was like, well, it's good to know, but it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> That's sure. really bad. It's also a shame as well, because Mara also was in um, the Death Patel starring Lion, this festival as well. Mm-hmm. And she's she's over two in good films, this festival, and good performances, sadly. Uh, that's, that's a shame. But yeah, um, yeah, Una, Una was just garbage, just awful, awful filmmaking. Sure. Okay. Well, very quickly then, what I want to do, I am going to pin you down on Ben Wheatley's Free Fire first, uh, well, secondly. First of all, I want to ask you about Hadmaiden because Park Chan-wook, I mean, what what other excuse do I need to ask you about it? Um, And then we'll just wrap up with a few that perhaps you were disappointed by or could have been better at the end. So, yeah, back to uh, Handmaiden. Tell me more. Tell me everything, Callum. Was it good? Was it bad? Everything about The Handmaiden. But then what are you going to be surprised by when it comes out in February <laughs> of next year? Everything but the inevitable twist will do. Uh, well, in any case, um, the, ha- the Handmaiden is uh, the Park Chan-wookiest film it is possible <laughs> for Park Chan-wook to make. Like, it, like, I'm not kidding. It's literally like he, you know, like he made Stoker. Mm-hmm. And Stoker's great. I love Stoker. I really do. But you could also tell there was this sense that he was having to pull back yeah, you know, like having to sort of, yeah, of course, yeah. hold off on all, like on his most wildest Park Chan Wookiest aspects because it's American. Americans can't understand that shit mm-hmm. uh, or can't do that shit. And it's almost like, as a result of that, he decided to go out and make the incredibly trashy psychosexual thriller that he had always wanted to make. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, you know, all Park Chan Wook's films are basically psychosexual thrillers in various ways. This is just the one that's open and blatant about it. <laughs> as well and it is a joy to watch it really is well paul described it because he reviewed it on the podcast um, a few weeks back i think when he well, when he was last on and he made the bold assertion that park chan wook makes better films each time each new film he makes is better than the last see, i can see that i can see that like uh, like watching it um i i, I was instantly reminded that Walk is one of the best directors working. Mm-hmm. Like he, like inarguably, as a fact, he he is a phenomenal director. This comes with a caveat that by the time, like, but when I watched it, um, I was a little bit tired. For, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for various reasons, like having not slept properly. But um, I didn't feel that instant classic spark with it that I got with Old Boy and Stoker. Okay. And also. Uh, the film doesn't really get properly going until about an hour in. It's split into three parts, um, mm. and by the end of part one, 
Uh, like it's really entertaining and you know stuff to watch at that point, but it's a lot of groundwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like a lot of groundwork to set up the rest, the next two parts to get you prepared for the twist. Uh, the first of many twists. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, no, not even the first. Not even the first of many twists. There's a lot of twists in this movie. Yeah, but like when it does have that twist, it's off to the races and it never really stops. And you know, never really comes back down to earth. Um, and also, I would argue it's maybe 15 minutes too long. Mm. Yeah, like like a film kind of wraps up at two hour mark. You know, it's building on it's you know, paid off all the character arcs, filled in all the blanks and all that stuff, and then just kind of keeps going for at least the first time I was watching it, in a way that doesn't really add much beyond allowing Wook to engage himself, to indulge himself in some nice good old-fashioned Park Chan-Wook violence, um, ultra-violence. But the film is great. It's really entertaining to watch. And it's him back in Korea, isn't it? It's not an English language. Yeah, no, yeah um, Korean and Japanese as well, because it's set in the uh, early 1900s um, during Japan. Uh, in a Korea being sort of... Sort of like in MVM of Japan. It is super interesting, super entertaining to watch. Um, a lot of fun to watch a master his craft. Pulls in a lot of very fun commentaries on erotica and like of the time and how it creates a sort of like misogynistic patriarchal control of it in the minds of men at that time. And also I kind of appreciate Wook's attempt to shoot uh, the, very, the film's various sex scenes not in a male gazy way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can't wait. It's not meant to be specifically titillating. Um, I don't think I'm not sure if he fully succeeds, but he tries at least, and that's worth something. Uh, it's really well performed. It's all very entertaining to watch, and I can already tell that I didn't get all of it the first time around. <laughs> you, you know, you yeah, know, you, you know when you're watching like like what like Park Chan Wook films are again. Whilst they might have that instant classic spark first time, which but they always grow on repeat viewings. Mm-hmm. Like once you're no longer second guessing it, when you're able to sit down and start taking in all the aspects. Um, and I can already tell the handmaiden is going to grow a lot for me on repeat viewings. Again, like that, that's why I understand when um, Thingy said that, you know, what grows a filmmaker each time he makes another film. Because, like, again, it's just him continuing to master and hone his craft and his powers. And this time, and in this instance, he has used it as, the, as a chance to finally make the movie he has clearly what spent his entire career wanting to make <laughs> and it is glorious yeah plus it stars uh hal jang Wu, which i think he's possibly one of the best korean actors around at the moment i guess people might know him from the chaser and kundo and he was in the yellow sea and he was in assassination last year and the berlin file great actor so it's good to see um good to see him working with one of the best korean directors as well uh also, then we will just quickly say about Free Fire, Ben Wheatley. Now, I think you've you've told me that High Rise is the only Ben Wheatley film that you've seen prior to to Free Fire. Has Free yes. Fire sort uh, of ignited? Excuse the pun. Ignited you uh, as a sort of yeah. Ben Wheatley fan, or are you? Uh, I mean, how do you feel after? I, I mean, I mean, I, I loved High Rise. The mm-hmm. record. Uh, High Rise is one of my favorite films of the year, and I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of his other films. Anyway, again, like it's not a sense of I've been skeptical on Ben Wheatley and waiting for him to win me over. It's just been that case of I'm lazy and haven't gotten around to watching any of the other <laughs> stuff yet. I have I have kill list penciled in for Halloween though. Good choice. I, I'm making my friend Lucy very happy about the fact that we're going to meet up on Halloween, and I'm going to finally watch Kill List. And I think from the sounds of it, she's just going to sit in like a chair next to me, but turn it to just stare at me the entire time. <laughs> So. Well, I mean, it's unusual for you to see a horror film in the cinema, anyway, isn't it? That's um, not some not your usual choice, right? Yeah, yeah. For example, for example, very quickly, here, I'm really annoyed that I did not go and see The Void 
um, which is playing here, Blonde uh, uh, as well, which is a Canadian low budget um, horror movie. Apparently, in the vein of John Carpenter and Practical Effect, yeah, you know, Practical mm-hmm. Monster Effects, Creature Effects kind of one, um, with a gorgeous one sheet that I tre- that I tweeted out the other day. Um, if you look at my Twitter account page as well, uh, I'm really annoyed. I didn't, I didn't, you know, fuck up the courage to go see that. Uh, I've already get to see Women Who Kill, but we'll talk about that very briefly in a bit. But yeah, in any case, uh, Free Fire is a film I have seen twice. Once at a press screening, and then once with the closing night ticket that I bought before festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good thing I bought it too, because uh, every film critic on the Friday morning was trying to get into Free Fire. Yeah, were you elbowing Robbie Collin and Peter Bradshaw and Mark Komodo the way? Like, like most, of, most of us had gotten up early to watch Nocturnal Animals, Tom Ford's uh-huh. Nocturnal Animals, which was in a different cinema. So essentially, as soon as Nocturnal Animals finished, you could, like, imagine, like, in Leicester Square, you could see, like, an army of film critics just sprinting the length of Leicester Square to get to the picture house to try to get to Free Fire. Uh, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. What, what, what it is, from what I understand of other Ben Wheatley films, is that it's going to be his weakest, but only because he's purposely aiming lower. Like, I watched High Rise in that band. High Rise is, you know, trying to be a lot of things, because it's trying to do a lot of things, because, you know, the High Rise tale is a lot of things in that band. It's just huge examination, all that kind of stuff. Um, what Free Fire instead is just trying to be is a very fun, lean, mean, entertaining genre exercise. A big screen film version of a finger gun fight you'd have on a school playground, or with um, elements of Sam Peckinpah and bits of Tarantino that thrown in for good measure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not saying anything. It's not trying to have any resonant themes. It's not trying to become anything other than, but you know, a relative cult classic. Whilst like it, it misses that kind of having any further resonance because it is old style and very little substance. Um, the film is a lot of fun. Like I have told me about that there. It's near flawlessly made of what it does. Yeah, you know, like near flawlessly made, near flawlessly mm-hmm. executing what it does, what it wants to do, and it's a lot of fun. Helped by the fact that um, Wheatley and Jump, his wife and screen partner, um, yep. Amy Jump, mm-hmm. pull, like, ring every last drop they can out of the premise um, and manage to edit everything together as well in a almost always coherent way so you know who's shooting at what, where. And a few times you don't, it's basically, you know, for an intention of even the characters don't seem to know who they're shooting at anymore or why they're shooting at anybody anymore. Uh, the cast are all having the time of their lives. Like, they're clearly having the absolute time of their lives, playing utterly despicable people, shooting each other in the stupidest of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also incredibly well-paced. Like, the first 30 minutes are just build-up to one hour, you know, to a one-hour gunfight. But the gunfight doesn't get boring because it's always broken up into smaller little chunks, you know, smaller little um, exchanges, uh, character beats, objectives, all that kind of stuff. You know, like a macro task of a giant firefight broken into mini ones to you know, make the pacing still feel great. It's really, yeah, again, it's just a really fun film, basically. There's not much more to say. Fair enough. When Wheatley wraps up his eventual filmmaking career, hopefully with film critics who uh, actually do recognise his abilities as a filmmaker because i for some reason of this festival have been surrounded by critics who really don't like ben wheatley well i think there is a perception of him that he's a little bit of um not a hack but he's overhyped i, I, I think is the i i, I got sat next to some paul verhoeven fan super fans before al who were visibly who were overheard saying uh but uh wheatley isn't actually that good of a filmmaker it's just somebody filmed for trying to push into being a cult filmmaker and nobody's yeah. buying like when those when the retrospectives for free you know for wheatley's career come around uh free fire will probably be the footnote of 
this was a moment Wheatley shot to you know wire attention mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but otherwise we'll stay low but that's fine because it's exceptional at what it's trying to do and it is very entertaining and it's got a pretty decent cast to it from from uh... it's got a great cast as well do you, do you like brie larson giving eye rolls like giving the best eye <laughs> rolls? i'm not sure if you're aware of this but brie larson gives the best eye rolls and free fire will show you that with a blong i'm sure they can have that for the for the poster if they want it brie larson best eye rolls yeah, plus also Killian Murphy busts out his Irish accent, and that's just fucking dreamy. Yeah, right. and Charlotte, I mean, Marion Ben Wheatley and Charlotte Copley together is just a dream film for me. So, um, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it when I see it in 12 months after it doesn't get shown at the cinemas here and it end up getting having to rent it or buy it from somewhere. I mean, I mean, this one, this one, I see absolutely no reason why it won't hit larger cinemas. But mm. then again, I thought High Rise would be everywhere. With Tom Hiddleston, look how that turned out. So well, high, high Rise is, I mean, it sounds like completely different in terms of High Rise is very much more of an arty sort of movie, you know. Yeah. Whereas this sounds yeah. a bit more accessible. Yeah, again, it's crowd pleasing midnight movie type. Yeah, movie sure. Beyond that, yeah. and he does it well. He does it well. Okay, so tell us a few more films that you've seen, or some that maybe were a disappointment in whatever way that you want to class them as a disappointment? Uh, well, I can very quickly run through uh, two other Ben Wheatley-related films from this festival sure, uh, okay. as well. Uh, first off, there's Alice Lowe's Prevenge, mm-hmm. which um, is her feature directorial debut, which she notably wrote and directed while seven months pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, stars as a mother-to-be whose husband died in an ax in a climbing accident and who talks to her child her unborn child uh an unborn child who is telling her that she should go about trying to get very violent revenge on the people they deem responsible it's very idiosyncratic very blackly comic incredible like very stylish and in just a lot of fun just a lot a lot of fun mm-hmm. um watch logan's a great performance also joanna hartley as well puts in a very another standout performance as um, a really condescending midwife and from what i've heard of sightseers it essentially uses its um ridiculously over-the-top premise to instead examine more mundane fears you know fears of pregnancy prepartum depression uh what's mm-hmm. best maybe all that kind of stuff like in really entertaining ways it ends like it, it kind of and like finishes anticlimactically although its end scene is a brilliant piece of tonal whiplash but that's like but that's not enough to you know do a override beforehand about that that's a lot of fun and it is definitely a future cult classic in the making meanwhile uh gareth tunley of down terrace and kill list um made a feature film mm-hmm. i guess made a feature film, directorial debut called ghoul which is a psychological thriller uh, like a very low budget psychological thriller uh, crime movie about actually not I'm not going to say you're not going to say okay <laughs> to explain what the premise is is also simultaneously completely outdated outdated way of describing within 20 minutes of the film starting like it's twist okay. upon twist right. um, it's like it's very serious like arguably too serious uh, could have stood to have a bit an actual sense of humour and it's clearly um, you know shaggy messy and, well not shaggy you know like kind of messy yeah, yeah. and um over ambitious but otherwise it's quite solid it's quite solid for a first time film actually mm-hmm. as well especially since as well um in its best moments it manages to 
create this kind of unsettling dreamlike atmosphere to it, uh, you know, in terms of like the pacing, the way it's constructed, the way it moves forward, that constant sense of something being wrong, but you're not sure what. Right. Well, about that. So it's like, yeah, so like it, it, it's it's solid it's a solidly well done first feature as well. Um might be worth checking out if it comes out anywhere. What about now what's what's your relationship with Jim Jarmusch? Uh Jim Jarmusch, I've um pay since the first film I've seen. Okay. You might you might notice I blag a bit sometimes in my <laughs> articles. Uh but like like but I have heard that um Paterson is very remi- uh, like embodying of many other Jarmusch movies. Okay. And pay like like and Peterson is like your tolerance for it will depend on your tolerance for slow burning movies. Uh, very introspective, very you know, yeah, very deliberate, mm. but also capable moments of great profundity. Is it full of twats? Basically, is it full of twats? Because that's my impression of Jim Jarmusch films. They're full of absolute ball bags. Uh, not this. I, I wouldn't say this one actually. Okay. I, I, I do think actually says uh, is is uh, Peterson played Adam Driver. And um, his wife, Laura, well, I think his wife, Laura, um, in a fantastic term by Goldshifte Farahani, um, are actually like, you know, really nice people as well. Like, you know, it's really nice. It's very sweet. Um, occasionally manages actual moments of profundity, um, you know, about, creative, about unhappy creative types who can't figure out what it is they're unhappy about, but know that, you know, like, no, who don't know what they want, but know that it's not this, mm-hmm. uh, which resonated with me a fair bit as well, given my current life before this I, I, i'd argue it's a bit too introspective and slow for its own good but again mileage may vary depending on your relationship with jarmouche another one as well here which is the actually the winner in competition at the um, festival as well yes. uh, like the official, the official competition winner kelly reichardt's uh assert, um, certain women objectively a great film i just didn't fully get it i found it more than a bit too slow for its own good that it's very glacial it in a way, though, it's also quietly revelatory. In a way that it 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 it, it specifically depicts um, like women's lives, you know, sure. like, like lives of ordinary women, of uneventful women whose lives are uneventful, even when they are by some metric eventful. Whilst I'm, I'm like, I, I can appreciate what it's trying to do. It's just for the most part, it's not for me. It also suffers from its second uh, segments. It's essentially three segments that are barely connected with one another. Um, its second segment being just really boring and going absolutely nowhere but it's third segment uh, involving a native american rancher uh falling for a like quietly falling for a um night school teacher mm-hmm. uh, played by kristen stewart um who is in arguably one of our best actors working today i will hear no arguments about this ship um as well is genuinely like it's actually quietly devastating and really well done culminating in a one that actually broke my heart the longer it went, it went on for I can understand why everybody else is raving about it. It's just not personally for me. Was this your your first Kelly Reichardt film, or did you have you seen any others? Yes, yes, it is. I've been meaning to watch Night Moves for absolutely ages. Yeah, um, I've got it on DVD unopened. I've had it for about a year. Some someone gave it to me for Christmas, and it's just sat on the side. I really need to find the time to to watch it, and the you know to build up the motivation to watch it because I, I loved Meek's cutoff, except yeah. for. The, the very beginning and the very end. There's like a point in that film where it, you know, it's funny you were just, just talking about certain women there where there's a, uh, you know, the act is very, one act is very slow. Because um, Meek's cutoff is very much like that. And then there's just a minute where you go, okay, this is excellent. This is amazing. This is a brilliant film. Um, yeah. And then it kind of fizzles out a little bit at the end again. 
But there's, you know, for yeah. like two thirds of Mick's cutoff, it's fucking amazing. But um, I can see it's yeah. it's it's that other third that's the the thing that prevents me watching night moves. And yeah, it just made me laugh then, just when you were talking about certain women. It seems like it's, it follows a very similar sort of pattern. Yeah. Um, very quickly, a couple of uh, lost, a couple of nice finds I had at the festival as well, but oh, won't yes, get as yeah. much talk. I won't get as much talk about um, as other great films that I have seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, was just to rattle them off. Um, you know, not talking death, but just other great films I've seen. Uh, Tower, mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. a documentary about the West Texas shooting, um, university shooting as well. That's fantastic. If hobbled by the fact that it doesn't connect itself enough to the culture at large. Um, you know, like our modern culture that today, uh, when it really needed to. Uh, Your Name, which is the new anime from the director of Five Centimeters Per Second. Mm-hmm. Look, that's a great film that's kept being essential film by self-sabotage and certain filmmaking choices. Um, and Micro Biglias Don't Think Twice as well, which I uh, I, um, I think suffered from being from me watching in a crowd full of people who seemed to believe they were watching a full-on comedy rather than a drama of comedy elements. Otherwise, it's like a genuinely heartbreaking film. Um, two films that I want to mention here as like genuine finds that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, three technically, but I'll just quickly mention the one. Is Women Who Kill, which is the feature film debut of writer and web series creator Ingrid Youngman, which is a dark comedy about two uh, New York women, the uh, lesbian Morgan, played by Youngman, and the bisexual um, Gene, played by Alice Carr, who co-hosts the titular podcast, Women Who Kill, a true crime podcast about whether interview famous female serial killers and hold debates over who they think is the hottest female serial killer and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they right. used to date each other. Mm-hmm. Like, they used to date each other, broke up, but still you know, basically do everything together uh, as well, which is kind of getting to them. And then things change when um, Simone wanders into um morgan's life simone played by sheila van who you might know as the girl from a girl walks home alone at night okay mm-hmm. and she and morgan strike up like like chemistry like that because sheila is very mysterious and i bet morgan's drawn to mysterious people except that everybody else is kind of suspicious of her like how uh, simone doesn't appear to be her actual name how she's very cagey about her life before she came to new york and the fact that she acts suspiciously like a psychopath um, the film is basically one of those is my is my partner a psycho movies. Um, but it's given like a, a nice fresh twist on outdated, you know, like on a worn out concept mm-hmm. through being very now again like yeah the podcast elements and that as well. Which with women who care a podcast, the bits of it we hear is both just ridiculous. It manages to walk that line between being just ridiculous enough for us to register as fake, but also is specifically niche and New Yorky and insular enough to feel like exactly the kind of podcast that would exist in today's you know, <laughs> recent podcast boom. And also being hella gay. Like, like it is hella gay. This is an explicit... Hella gay. An explicit, yeah, okay. Hella gay, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, it's explicitly lesbian film. Like, basically all the cast members are lesbians or bisexuals in some kind of way. And that provides a nice, you know, like, fresh perspective and style that actually, in fact, like, you know, like, drifts through the entire film and makes yeah. it a really interesting new look at Again, a, a played-out concept in most other forms as well, along with a very, very dry sense of humour and great performances by Youngerman and Vand uh, as well. I, I really, I really, really, really dug Women Who Kill. Um, it has the same problem as Prevenge, where it kind of ends anticlimactically, but also like Prevenge, that's not enough to you know 
pull the ride, you know, like to pull the veins on the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one on it is a documentary because I haven't talked much about documentaries on this mm-hmm. one right here, but I've seen a lot of them. It's been good. Is the Man from Moax, which is a documentary about James Lavelle, uh, the founder of Moax Records, man who essentially discovered DJ Shadow and then teamed up with him on the music project Uncle and then proceeded to turn into a giant asshole throughout the entire 2000s. And whereas most, you know, documentaries, um, especially, you know, about like musical geniuses and all that kind of stuff, are, you know, will hit that kind of point where they go of, yeah, he was an asshole throughout this period, but he was also a genius. So, you know, it all shakes out. Um, the Man from Moax is a kind of film, but is not afraid to just go, yeah, no, he was an asshole. <laughs> he was a grade A asshole, and there's no excuse for it. Like, essentially depicting a genuine Watson old documentary about mm-hmm. um, a youthful, like, like a, a, a youthful visionary who, yeah, you know, who was a misfit, drawn to an outsider's club, rocketed to fame, on his own merits, but then exactly because of that youthful um, arrogance in terms of that essentially sealed his own downfall as soon as he touched any measure of success um, by alienating old friendships, turning into an artist rather than a record label executive first, and turning into just a massive asshole in the process mm, mm. before eventually finding some kind of small measure of, redemp- of personal redemption as the story ends. And because it actually puts the work into that middle part and also doesn't pretend that the ending is some kind of giant all conquering, and that's why the world should not have written off James LaBelle kind of <laughs> um, thing about there. It actually ends up like genuinely becoming this really entertaining, you know, rags to riches to rags to redemption movie again, uh, as well. Just really, really well made filmmaking that's very well paced, very entertaining to watch, um, and enjoyable for people who, for even for people who don't get anything out or who don't know anything about. Mo Wax or Uncle or even Trip Hop as well. It was a surprising, it was genuinely surprising find at the festival for me. And also, very quickly, I want to give a quick shout out to Chasing Asylum, which is a documentary about Australia's completely inhumane treatment of sure. um, migrants and refugees, which I have not rated because it's the kind of film that really does defy you know, ratings and that yeah. there. like it, it, it's it's a essentially it's a film second and a necessary vital work and statement but of political activism first um as well and it, it, it like but it is but that's not to take away from the fact that it is really really um engaging viewing mm-hmm. which is the kind of best word i can say for it right now to be honest given that it's not exactly you know yeah, it's it's the kind of what makes you say it's excellent viewing or it's entertaining viewing. It just that's just like basically the wrong thing to say, but you know it's going to missell it to someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I make that eighteen films out of the forty that you saw that we've talked about on the podcast. So under half of them. Um, so what I'm going to suggest listeners do is check out the articles on the website failcritics.com, and they can read. All of the reviews of all forty films that you've written about. Um, yeah, did you? You have written about all forty, haven't you? There isn't any oh, yeah, that you've yeah, just yeah, missed. Yeah, yeah there we. Wow, yeah. so that's a lot of lot of words for people yeah, yeah, to work yeah, through. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in fact, as soon as we hang up here, I'm going to go to bed and get up the following morning and write the last piece that I have to do. So then I will have written about all forty films. Amazing. So. <laughs> okay. Work yeah. So, um, thanks very much for coming on and doing this, Callum. I really appreciate you sort of spending a bit of time with us again. And I think the next time we'll see you on the podcast will be the end of year awards in December. 
So, yes, I believe so. I promise to be on my best behaviour this year. <laughs> and you'll probably be... Uh, you'll, you, I know you've seen so many films this year, probably more than anyone that we'll have on the podcast, but you are still limited to just 10. So you've got between now and a couple weeks into December to really nail the top 10 of the year. So uh, I, 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 I think I'll be able to pull that off. You reckon? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, cheers. Thanks very much, Callum. Thank you for having me. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.